So Genesis chapter 43, an amazing feast for the fearful. An amazing feast for the fearful. Let me pray as we get into this. Our Father, you call us again to come and to see what you have done, to see how awesome you are in your deeds toward the children of man. And you've called us to feast afresh on the abundance of your house, to drink anew from the river of your delights. And may you so bless the preaching of your word now, empower all of it, and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe and to receive all that you have for us, for your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Well, at the end of Genesis chapter 42, it seems that God's chosen people, Jacob with his 11 sons and all of their families, it seems that they are stuck in the mud of fear, of distress, and of dysfunction. Nine of Jacob's sons have returned from Egypt with grain, but without their brother Simeon. And the Lord of the land of Egypt, who is Joseph, though these men don't know yet that it's him, he's imprisoned Simeon, and he's only going to release him if the brothers return and they bring Benjamin, their youngest brother. But Jacob, their father, who has been grieving Joseph's presumed death for more than two decades, He refuses to let Benjamin, his now favorite son, go. And thus it seems that God's promise plan to bless the nations through this family, it seems like it's come to a screeching halt. It's come to a dead end. It's come to an impossible impasse. But God is still working to abundantly bless. And so the story amazingly continues. So let's hear the word of the living God. I'm going to read all of chapter 43. This is what we're looking at this morning, beginning in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah, who was one of the brothers, said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, who was Jacob as well, Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And what we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man." May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Verse 16. 
When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring them in into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told them and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. And so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have bought, brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Verse 23, he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out. For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians." And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before this scene in chapter 43, we learn in chapter 42 that there it reveals that Joseph's brothers had become fearful under the crushing weight of God's justice. On their first visit to Egypt, they had had an unsettling encounter with Joseph in Egypt, though again, they did not yet know it was him. And they had come before him in order to buy grain during the famine that was in the land. And so we're told in chapter 42 that Joseph, the Lord of the land, had spoken roughly to them. And he'd accused them of being spies and he questioned their honesty and their integrity. And all of this awakened their dull consciences with the hateful crime that they had committed against Joseph 30 or 22 years earlier. And at that time, they declared in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 42, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. They said, this is why this distress has come upon us. They're feeling the weight of God's justice because of their guilt. Well, Joseph then held their brother Simeon in custody, and he sent the others back to Canaan with orders to prove their honesty by returning to Egypt with Benjamin. 
And on their journey home, one of them discovers that money that they had used to buy grain in Egypt had been put back in his sack. And this only multiplied their fears and were told that their hearts sank. And with trembling, they cried out, what is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? What an agonizing, terrifying question that was being expressed from these guilty and distressed souls. And it is that dark and foreboding question, what is this that God has done to us that is intended to echo in our minds with the story that follows in chapter 43 onward? God is indeed doing something. God is up to something. In fact, not just to these men, but also with their brother Joseph and to their father Jacob, who was also renamed by God Israel. And God is doing something to all the nations, and God is doing something to you and to me as well. What is this that God has, is doing? And I wonder if you've ever asked that question, friends. What is this that God is doing to me? I've asked that question sometimes. What is God doing? Maybe you're even asking that question now. Well, chapter 43 begins to answer this question, but in a way that is shocking, and it is also filled with hope. What is it that God is doing? Here's the answer. God is always working to abundantly bless. God is always working to abundantly bless. In fact, let me make it personal and specific for each one of us. God is always working to abundantly bless you. And he's doing that with me. He is always working to abundantly bless you. And just to give it a little bit of texture and a little bit of flavor within the events of chapter 43, let me say it this way. And just to to put it in a little bit of a rhyme to help us remember it, let me say it this way. The unchanging God who fills sacks with treasure and who also fills mouths with pleasure, he also works to fill grieving and guilty souls with blessing beyond measure. The unchanging God who fills sacks with treasure, and who also fills mouths with pleasure, works to fill grieving and guilty souls with blessings beyond measure. This is the lesson that we see in these events in chapter 43. And what I want to do is show you four ways within these events in chapter 43 that the unchanging God is working even now to abundantly bless you. Four ways we see within these events that God is working to abundantly bless you and me. Here's way number one. God works in circumstances to bring you to the end of yourself in desperate need. God works in circumstances to bring you to the end of yourself in desperate need. Now, as we've seen so many times throughout Genesis, we see it again here in chapter 43, the sovereign, mighty hand of God ordering and governing all circumstances and all people. And this is what God did with Jacob and his family. He brought them to the end of their resources with the famine in the land. He brought them to the end of themselves in desperate need. They were desperate for grain lest they starve to death. 
Now, by the way, with the gift that Israel directs his sons to take back to Egypt of a few meager elements of food, most likely those are just some remnants of things that are still around, but it wasn't going to be enough to sustain life. And so it was a sacrificial gift even that he directed. This famine, we're told there in verse 1, had become severe. And though they had made one trip to Egypt, returned with grain, that was running out, they needed more. And they had come to the end of themselves in desperate need. And this need for food was what drove their first trip to Egypt, and it's what drives their return now in chapter 43. Now, we've already seen in chapters 37 to 41 how God sovereignly and surprisingly worked to bring Joseph to power in Egypt. And God is also the one who sovereignly inclined Joseph to demand that the brothers bring Benjamin with them when they return to Egypt. And God sovereignly worked in these physical circumstances with Jacob and his family, provoking their need for grain. And he did this in order to expose deeper spiritual issues that they needed to deal with. And friends, this is often how God works with us, bringing us to the end of ourselves in desperate physical need in order to address deeper spiritual issues that we need to deal with. God often does this. Think about it for Jacob. For Jacob. He had been crushed with immobilizing grief and fear for more than 22 years over the apparent death of Joseph. His, Joseph's brothers had lied to Jacob about Joseph's demise and uh, Jacob believed that he had died and we're told at the end of chapter 37 that he refused to be comforted. He had committed himself to grieving until the day of his own death. He says, no, there at the end of chapter 37, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Sheol was a way of referring to the place of death. And Jacob never quit weeping some 22 years later. And before Joseph's demise, Jacob had already been mourning the death of his wife, Rachel, who was the mother of both Joseph and Benjamin. She actually died as she was giving birth to Benjamin. And this is why Benjamin had now become Jacob's favored son and why Jacob was fearful of letting him go. And chapters 42 and 43 make clear that Jacob has essentially abandoned the promise plan of God. In other words, there's no reference to him looking to God, looking to his promises, just overwhelmed by his grief. And what had happened is that reasonable, understandable grief had given way to a self-absorbed, excessive sorrow over Joseph's absence. Jacob is now consumed with fear about letting Benjamin go. He's really made an idol in his heart out of Benjamin. And so even as he reluctantly agrees to Judah's appeals, as as we see that unfold in verses 1 to 14 of chapter 43, you hear Jacob's self-centered concern and resignation, even with his prayer wish in verse 14. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother, he's referring to Simeon there, and Benjamin. He says, as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. He's basically saying, this is a lost cause. It's going to happen. Benjamin's gone. I might as well just grieve. But you see, even in his prayer, all he's thinking about is what he wants. And it's understandable at one level. But you see, he's abandoned God and he's abandoned God's promises for what it is that God has designed to do. But what we find in the story is that God didn't abandon him. He hasn't let him go. But nonetheless, Jacob's hopes here are small. They're earthbound. He's got no thought of God and his glorious promise plan to bless the nations through him and his offspring. Well, then for Joseph's brothers, 
as we've seen, they are crushed with guilt and distress and fear because of the vicious, hateful crime that they had committed against Joseph so many years earlier. And up to this point, they had never owned up to their sin. They had hidden their sin. They had carried on life as if they had never sinned, and yet they had, and they were guilty, and their consciences have been awakened. They had never repented from it, and so God ordered the circumstances of the famine, and God had put Joseph in power in Egypt, all as the means of bringing these brothers to deal with their sin, and they're terrified. They're terrified. And so as we see in verses 15 to 22 of chapter 43, they fearfully believe that Joseph is going to bring them into his house in order to enslave them and to abuse them and to exact punishment on them. Even though they don't know it's Joseph at this point, I'm sure their fears would have been all the more terrified if they would have known at this point that it was Joseph. But the point to see in all of this, friends, is that God ordered these circumstances for Jacob and his sons to bring them to the end of themselves in desperate need. Not to destroy them, but to ultimately bless them. And their physical need for food led to circumstances that exposed their deeper spiritual needs. You see, Jacob needed comfort And he needed renewed faith in God. And his sons needed repentance and the forgiveness that comes from God. And in all of these things, as the subsequent chapters are going to reveal, God's ultimate intent is to abundantly bless. And so he's bringing them to the end of themselves in desperate need as a way of preparing them to know his abundant blessings. God often does the same things with us, working in our circumstances to bring us to the end of ourselves in order to produce even greater spiritual fruit in our lives. Sometimes it's because there is sin that we have not been dealing with that needs to be exposed to our consciences so that we can own it and confess it and repent from it and know God's forgiveness and cleansing. Sometimes it's simply because there are hard, painful things that we need to be renewed in our faith to God. We need to be renewed in knowing His comfort and His provision in the light of those things that he does care and that he is a gracious and merciful God. Sometimes he's just working to prune us and to refine us and to deepen more fruit. But beloved, this is part of God's severe mercy in bringing us to a fuller experience of his abundant blessings. He works in circumstances to bring you and I to the end of ourselves in desperate need. Well, this leads to the second way that we see God working in chapter 43 that bears application for us. It is this, God works to bring you face to face with the only solution for your need. God works to bring you face to face with the only solution for your need. You see, for Jacob and his family, getting grain from the Lord of the land in Egypt, of course it was Joseph, but getting grain with Benjamin present was the only solution for avoiding starvation. That was it. And so this is the heart of Judah's appeal to Jacob. Especially when he says what he does in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 43. He essentially says, let us take Benjamin with us to Egypt or we're all going to die here of starvation. Saying, Dad, do you not get it? If you keep Benjamin, we all die. If you give him up, we get grain and we'll live. And so Jacob finally agrees and so God worked in this to bring the brothers face to face with Joseph, who was the only solution for their need of life-sustaining grain. 
But in this encounter, how much more did God have in store for them than just grain from Egypt? So it's so amazing about this story and about what God is doing. They wanted grain. They needed grain. But God knew they had far greater needs, and he's preparing them to have those needs met. And little did they know at that time that God wasn't just bringing them face-to-face with the only solution to their need for food, but he would bring them face-to-face with the only solution for the troubles and for the distresses of their souls. And so chapter 44 and following is going to tell us more of how God will bring abundant blessing to Jacob through Joseph. But for now, for the rest of chapter 43, it just really focuses on what's going on with these brothers. We're going to see Jacob again quite prominently in chapter 44 and 45. Of course, you can read ahead on your own about that. But for the rest of chapter 43, it focuses in on how God begins to bring his brothers face to face with their only, with the only solution for their need. And so God begins to do this and the feast that Joseph has with these fearful men, as amazing and perplexing as it is, is a foretaste. It's a foretaste for them of the abundant blessings yet to come. And the brothers will come to understand in time that God didn't just bring them face to face with Joseph, but he brought them face to face with himself that they might know the abundant blessings of his saving, forgiving, loving care. Far greater needs they had and far greater blessings than just grain God had in store for them. And you see, beloved, whatever circumstances God ordains for us, his work and his will is for us to come face to face with him, to seek him and to trust him and to know the abundant blessings of his mercy and his grace and his love and his provision in Jesus Christ. And he wants us continually to seek the face of Christ by faith, to continually come to him in faith. And for any of us, always coming face to face with Jesus is the only solution for the problems of our sin and for the problems of our suffering. He's the only solution for the problems of our sin, and for the problems of our suffering. I would say to you this morning, if you are carrying the burden of sin and guilt before God, you know that you haven't worshipped Him in the way He is worthy to be worshipped. You know that you've abused His goodness and His commands and His holiness and His righteousness. And however it may be manifest in your life, you know that you've sinned against Him and you're carrying the sin and the guilt. Jesus even now calls you to come to Him. Even as we sang earlier, to come, you sinner, to Him. And to know forgiveness and cleansing. Jesus expresses as much in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you come to Christ? Forever in your life have you come to him acknowledging your sin or are you carrying the weight and the burden of all that sin and guilt on your own shoulders? He offers you to come to him now. If you don't come to him, you'll carry that weight and that guilt through all eternity, experiencing the judgment of God and justly so. But he calls you to come by faith even now. And perhaps you're suffering So many different ways that we suffer. Aren't there so many ways that we experience grief and sorrow and trouble and perplexity? And we so easily become weary in trials and troubles. We become so greatly in need of help, which God knows and cares about. And he says to you and he says to me, even as he said to King David in Psalm 27, verse 8, he says, seek my face, seek my face. 
And if you're trusting Jesus as your great high priest, knowing that he sympathizes with you and with your weaknesses, then we continually can and we continually must hear his invitation and respond to it, such as in Hebrews 4, verse 16, that with confidence we can draw near to his throne of grace and to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. He wants us to seek his face. You see, Jacob had, had abandoned that. He was no more seeking God's face in the midst of his grief. He was just buried in, turned in on himself in his grief. He was in a horrible place, a tragic place, and we so easily find ourselves there. And God still says, come, seek my face, and know my mercy, know my grace. And so you see within all of this, we see God working in the circumstances of Jacob and his sons to bring them to the end of themselves in desperate need. And then we also see God working to bring them face to face with the only solution for their need. Well, this leads to a third way that we see God working to abundantly bless. And it is this. Number three, God works with overflowing kindness to bring you to repentance. God works with overflowing kindness to bring you to repentance, which is your deepest need if there is sin that has not been repented from. In chapter 43, we see God doing with Joseph's brothers in all of this kindness that pours out on them we see God doing what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There it is. Oh, how we see the kindness of God to Jacob and his sons in chapter 43 really all over these events in, in, in Genesis. It was God's kindness, wasn't it, to send Joseph ahead to bring salvation to Jacob and his brothers. It was God's kindness to bring a famine that would result in Jacob and his brothers being reconciled with God, with one another, and with Joseph. It was God's kindness to provide Jacob and his massive family with grain and provisions from Egypt. And it was God's kindness to even prompt Judah to seek to persuade Jacob for Benjamin to go to Egypt with them. And of course, when the brothers come to Egypt, it was God's kindness for Joseph to invite them into his house to eat with him. And it was God's kindness that the steward of Joseph's house calmed their fears with words of peace and telling them, as he does in verse 23, that it was the God of their father himself who had put treasure in their sacks. It's an amazing statement. It's really the key to the whole chapter. He's, he's telling them God is doing this. This is what God is doing to you. He's being kind to you because he's working to bring you to repentance. And it was God's kindness to put this treasure in their sacks in the first place. And of course, it was God's kindness to have the brothers feast with Joseph and to have them refreshed with their feet being washed and their donkeys being fed and watered. And for all of them, by the end of the chapter, to be amazed that now they're just drinking and being merry with the royal ruler that they had one time feared. What kindness from God. Overflowing kindness mediated through Joseph, and it's all over this passage. And even though they were clearly fearful as they enter Joseph's house and bring their meager gifts that they brought in an effort to try to appease him, Joseph's brothers become amazed at what takes place as they begin to dine with this powerful man. Far from being enslaved, they're treated with respect and with dignity and with care. 
No doubt they're amazed that he hasn't bound them and put them into prison as he had done with them on their first visit for a few days and as he had done with Simeon. And they're amazed also that they're seated in their birth order. I mean, think about this. How did anybody know their age? That must have amazed them. And they're amazed as the lavish food and drink begin to be served, no doubt amazed and puzzled that Benjamin receives five times as much. But with all of this, you see their fears are are dissipating. Their fears are shrinking away. And they're being replaced with this amazement and their hearts are being softened and tenderized at this display of kindness from this royal ruler that they once feared. And so they're eating and drinking and being merry with him. Friends, how kind God is to sinners. And how kind he is as a means of leading sinners to repentance. To know that he is good. To know that he is gracious. To know that he is worthy of being trusted and obeyed because he is so kind. We're told in chapter 42 that God, through Joseph, had been somewhat rough with these brothers. But he's also been lavishly kind to them. And even his roughness was coming from his kindness as a means of deepening the blessings that he's intending to pour out on them. And so this kindness begins to soften and break them. And it's interesting, at the end of the chapter, when we're told this little point that Joseph uh, shows favoritism to Benjamin by giving him five times as much, what's going on there is that Joseph is testing them to see if they're going to be jealous and hateful towards Benjamin as they had been jealous and hateful toward him when he was his father's favorite. But even with that display of of explicit favoritism, there's no hint of them being jealous or hateful. They're just enjoying what's being provided and they're eating and being merry with him. Have you ever thought, friend, about the kindnesses, the kindnesses of God in your own life? Notwithstanding whatever trials, challenges, griefs, and pains you may experience, but think about the kindnesses of God. If you've ever had an experience where there has been unrepentant sin in your life, or perhaps even now there may be unrepentant sin in your life, do you see how God has yet been kind to you? So many common graces that he gives to all. Food and clothing and shelter, the rain and the sun and myriads of other kindnesses. The very fact that you and I are still alive is a testimony to his kindness. Beloved, God is always good. He's always kind. He's always working to abundantly bless you and I with all of his spiritual blessings in Christ. And even within trials and sorrows and griefs that he ordains, He is always with those who trust him. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he's abundantly, overflowingly kind. Well, this brings us to the fourth and the final way that we see God working to abundantly bless. And it is this. God works within real decisions that you must make that have real consequences. God works within real decisions you must make that have real consequences. You see, in Genesis 43, God's sovereign, gracious work to abundantly bless Jacob and his family was not independent of real decisions with real consequences that they all made along the way. Now, there's profound and unresolvable mystery here, but Scripture everywhere reveals the absolute sovereignty of God controlling everything and everyone, and yet God's sovereignly doing what He does within the decisions and the actions. And here's the really amazing point, even the sinful decisions and actions of human beings. 
How that all works together, I don't know. I'm not God, and you don't know either. But it's what Scripture reveals. His absolute sovereignty working within the real decisions that have real consequences to accomplish His purposes. Now, we've seen much of this in chapters 37 and following, really throughout all of Genesis. But think about the humble, wise, and godly decisions and actions of Joseph. Though he was mistreated and abused by his brothers, though he was sold into slavery in Egypt, though he was falsely accused by his master's wife of trying to rape her, though he's then thrown in prison and he's forgotten in prison, yet all along the way, all it seems that he's doing is trusting the Lord and deciding to seek the Lord and trust the Lord and entrust himself to the Lord. And the fact that he's doing that becomes evident later on as he gives testimony to the fact that he knows that even though all that had happened to him had happened at the hands of wicked people, it was ultimately God's sovereign design that was at work in bringing him to Egypt in order to be the means by which salvation would come to others. He's deciding to trust God and to obey him. He's deciding to not grumble and complain and rebel. And we've also seen much of Jacob making various decisions. We've seen much of Joseph's brothers making various decisions. And all of these decisions have real consequences. And yet, within everything, God has been working. God has been working to accomplish his sovereign purposes to bring abundant blessing in the end. Praise be to God. Friends, this should remind us that we are always dependent upon and accountable to God for the decisions that we make. He calls us to trust Him. He calls us to obey Him. And this should also remind us that He is always in control, that He is always working out His sovereign plan, and that it's not for us to know or to understand the particulars but rather to operate on the basis of faith in accordance with all that God has revealed, trusting that He is faithful. And even when we struggle to trust, even when we doubt, even when we wrestle with those questions, that we're nonetheless crying out to Him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to trust. And even if we've made sinful and unbelieving decisions, We can yet trust his forgiveness and his cleansing and trust that our sin has not derailed his plan and his purpose. And so as we confess, we can trust that he is still working everything after the counsel of his will, as Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 11, and that he's still working everything together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, as Paul says in Romans 8 verse 28. And so we can trust this mysterious interplay between God's sovereignty and our decisions. Paul speaks of this actually in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have to work it out. We have to make decisions. We have to decide to trust, to obey, to seek him, to look to him for strength and grace and mercy that we need. We have to work out our salvation, knowing that it's him that is working in us, that which is to will and to work for his good pleasure. And again, this is mystery, but this is what he reveals. So back to the question. What is God doing in your life? Whatever else you may not know and I may not know about the particulars, we can be absolutely certain that God is always working to abundantly bless. That's what we see happening in Genesis 43. Again, the unchanging God who fills sacks with treasure and who fills mouths with pleasure works to fill grieving and guilty souls with blessings beyond measure. And so we've seen these four ways that God does this. 
He works in circumstances to bring you to the end of yourself in desperate need. And he works to bring you face to face with the only solution to your need, which is him and all of his glory in Christ. He works with overflowing kindness to bring you to repentance. And he works within the real decisions that you must make that have real consequences. God is always working to abundantly bless you. Now here's an interesting reality. The literal feast that was going on in Joseph's house at the end of chapter 43, that feast anticipates a far greater feast of abundant mercy and grace that Jacob and his sons are going to come to share with the Lord and with one another. There's a feast of mercy and grace that is just around the corner for them. And we're going to begin to see that in chapters 44 and 45 in coming weeks. They become reconciled with God and with one another. They become renewed in God's covenant promises and purposes. And they dwell fruitfully in Egypt. It's an amazing story of of God's feast of mercy and grace in their lives. But all of that isn't even the end of the story. Because all of that anticipated an even greater deliverance and feasting in many years to come. When God would powerfully lead his enslaved people out of bondage in Egypt through the exodus. And when he would powerfully provide for them a feast in the wilderness by providing manna for them from heaven. And so this feast is getting bigger and greater and more significant as time goes on. But all of that's still not the end of the story, is it? Because all of that feasting is anticipating the greatest feast of salvation that God would bring about in Jesus Christ. And it's with this feasting imagery in mind that Jesus says what he does in John chapter 6 that we heard read earlier. Let me just remind you what he says in verses 48 through 51 there. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, all the feasting that we see in Scripture is anticipating the feast of what it means to know the riches of all of God's blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual blessings in Him that sometimes ooze over in material realities in this life, but that point us heavenward, that cause us to look for a hope that is in heaven, not on the things of this earth. Remember Jacob's prayer wish in verse 14 of chapter 43. What is it that he wants? He wants Benjamin back. He wants Simeon back. And God says to him, I have so much more for you, you can't even imagine. That's the way it is for us, isn't it? We get so easily locked in on the things of this world, the things of this life. They're not bad things in and of themselves, but our hope is so small. It's so stunted. And God says, look at the feast of spiritual blessings I've given you in Christ. That's what I want you to know. That's what I want you to feed on. That's where your hope is. It's Christ and it's Christ. And of course, the riches of feasting on Christ come to consummation when he returns. And all of his people identified as his bride, will feast with him forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Revelation chapter 19 speaks of that. Talk about an amazing feast for those who were once fearful. He removes our fear and he gives us the feast of himself. So as I close this morning, I would just ask, how are you responding to God's work to abundantly bless you in Christ. What's your response, friend, to him? To receive, to trust, and to submit to Jesus by faith 
even struggling as we all do with wobbly, shaky, imperfect faith, yet nonetheless saying, Lord, I trust you. Help me trust you more. Help me look to you more. Trusting and obeying him. Taking refuge in him. Or are you refusing him? There's really only one of two responses. You're either moving towards him or you're moving away. Resisting him rejecting him, rebelling against him, maybe with passive, preoccupied indifference, but nonetheless just saying, no thanks. Friend, even though God is continually working to bless you, if you continue to resist his blessing in rebellion and unbelief, you will know nothing but his curse. And that for all eternity. And he will be right and just to give you that. But he holds out mercy. He holds out blessing in Christ. Forgiveness, life, hope, peace, joy. No matter what you've done, he says, I forgive it. And I will continually forgive and cleanse. So, oh, that you might share the joyful and hope-filled experience of knowing him. And being able to testify with King David, as we heard read at the beginning of the service from Psalm 36. When David says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of delights. May you know that feasting and that delight. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you that you ever invite we who are sinners to to come to you. And you do so again and again and again. It's so overwhelming that with Jacob and with with all of his brothers, after all of these years of grief and of sorrow, of unrepentant sin on the part of his brothers, yet your design was to bless them. And in all of the things that you ordered in your circumstances, you're moving them deeper and deeper into these blessings that you've designed to give them. Father, please forgive us for the ways we so quickly grumble and resist your care. We so quickly abandon faith and trust in your promises. We need your help, O God. I pray that each one would know the hope of trusting you in fullest measure and that their hope would be revived and renewed and that you would strengthen them to persevere in whatever you've ordained for them, knowing that in due time, You will bring them into that broad place, be it in heaven or even be it on earth, that you will fulfill what you have promised. And so, Father, help us and may your grace and mercy be abounding to each one for the glory of your name. We pray in in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.